Alright, this is week two in our series in the book of Revelation. Week two. If you missed week one, I would commend to you to go back and listen to some of the way we introduced the book of Revelation uh, to help you get oriented. There are a lot of deceptive teachers and people in the world. There is deception everywhere around us. It happens online all the time. Would you agree? So if you're new to Calvary, just a little insider commercial here for us. About three weeks ago, our system was hacked. And many of you received emails from me. And um, you got emails from me asking for Amazon gift cards uh, to send. Okay, That's the deception I'm talking about in part, I will never ask you for an Amazon gift card, or seven of them. I might ask you for a ticket to next Saturday's football game, <laughs> but, but I won't ask you for an Amazon gift card or cash for our staff or any people who are sick. It kind of went through the whole system that many of our people were asked in my name to give things. Uh, we won't do that. You always check the, where that's coming from. There are a lot of counterfeits who have gone out into the world. And I just tell you that to begin with this morning because where we're going this morning is to see not a counterfeit, but the absolute picture of who Jesus Christ is in the first of several visions in the book of Revelation. We're going to see a picture of Jesus as we've never seen Him before. In fact, probably when you think about who is Jesus, what comes to your mind is immediately we go to the Gospels and we think about who Jesus is and we could each think about our favorite story in the Gospels. And what would we think of? We might think of Jesus being on a mountainside teaching the Beatitudes or feeding the 5,000 or being in a boat and calming the storm, um, healing the sick. We, we would think about Jesus in all of these ways from the Gospels, but when you get to the book of Revelation, we're going to see a picture of Jesus that is altogether different, and it's going to shape the way we think about who He is, and I hope it will help shape us this morning as we move through the service and then conclude our time by taking communion together. And what I pray will be in your mind is the Jesus, not only that is revealed in the Gospels, but the Jesus who is revealed in part and in fuller measure in the first chapter of the book of Revelation. So if you have your Bible, let's open together. Some of you picked up a journal and you're going to travel with us through the journal that we gave to you through the book of Revelation, but having your Bible each week will also help you as we look at other passages in the Bible. You excited to be in the book of Revelation? All right. Little review. The book of Revelation has four distinct genres in the literature of the book of Revelation. It is, of course, Revelation. It's Revelation, and that's a disclosure of something that was otherwise not known. It is the Greek word apocalypse. And uh, the whole word of apocalypse has taken on a different, fuller, dystopian idea through movies. But the sense in the Bible is God has just uncovered what's coming. 
But the Bible does contain apocalyptic language, which is language uh, that was connected oftentimes to dreams and visionary experiences. Apocalyptic language has vivid symbolism that describes what is not seen to the naked eye. It's often so different and otherworldly that one way to think about it is it describes earthly events from a heavenly perspective or apocalyptic language describes heavenly realities to the best of its ability with earthly human language. Third, um, it's prophecy. It predicts the future. It tells what's coming. And the fourth idea about the book of Revelation in a genre, how it's written, it is a historical book to real churches written that we're going to look at this morning. And so it's helpful when we look at the book of Revelation to think about all the different genres that are included because this creates a complexity of understanding. One more, you ready for one more little interpretive key? So when people think about interpreting the book of Revelation over the years, through the centuries, there have been about four major approaches to interpreting the book of Revelation. Here they are. The first is the preterist view. Preterist is the Latin word for uh, past or um, historical. It, it, it views Revelation not as future prophecy, but as a historical fact of first century events. A preterist view of Revelation uh, particularly sees the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., by Rome, and ultimately the fall of the Roman Empire are the things that will soon take place that John speaks about in the book of Revelation. So this view sees all of the book of Revelation as having already happened in the past. Which is difficult when you get to chapter 19, 20, and 21 where the real bodily return of Jesus is predicted. And it denies a future return of Jesus, which makes this not a very orthodox position. A partial preterist would say that all of the book of Revelation happened in the past, but chapters 19, 20, and 21 are still future. The second is a historist position, which sees the book as an overview of church history describing various times of persecution and tribulation throughout the centuries. From the apostolic times to today, a historist sees the history of the church and the book of Revelation unfolds it. It's another way people have tried to make sense of the apocalyptic language in the book of Revelation. A futurist view of the book of Revelation sees the book of Revelation, particularly chapters 22, uh, 4 through 22, excuse me, as a prediction of future events at the end of the age. It's been the predominant view in the last 30 or 40 or 60 years, but it sees the book of Revelation as still future to us and therefore as a distant future to John and the churches to whom John wrote. A futurist view. Each of these first three are temporal in nature. They have to do with how the book of Revelation relates to time. And the last view is an idealist view of the book of Revelation. And it views Revelation as the timeless struggle between good and evil. 
that has happened in every era throughout church history and the conflict between Christ and His church and Satan and His angels from the apostolic age to the second coming of Jesus. These are four dominant views of thinking about how to interpret the book of Revelation. There are also ways of looking at it where people have said, I like this and I like that, and there's a combination of them. And what we want to hope to do, because some of you are saying, well, what view are we, Pastor Tom? And uh, the truth about it is that there are people in each, nearly each of these, not the full preterists, but who, who believe in the second coming of Jesus. And um, this is where the church has been divided. And we've made a commitment that we're not going to be divided about this. Yes? Okay, we're going to say, what, what, where are we? Probably some of us will fit in one of these camps, and that's good, but what we all hope we will be is very biblical as we approach this. So we're going to let the Bible speak to us and, and see how it all fits together. Uh, there are many words around eschatology, and that's a word. That's a $10 word. Uh, the study of future things. And then there are many words that we'll look at, and we're going to try not to get too heady or too wordy about thinking about the book of Revelation, but these are four words that there'll be a quiz on it next week when you come back, all right? In our movement, the Evangelical Free Church of America, uh, because there are people in our movement who see things a little bit differently, we, we have summarized a statement that speaks of the end times and the return of Jesus Christ. And our statement in the Free Church goes this way. We believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant expectancy and as our blessed hope motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. This would be a good banner for us to hold over as we go travel through the book of Revelation, knowing that we might see things a little bit differently from one another, but the things that we're absolutely certain about is Jesus coming back. Okay. And He's coming back bodily. It's going to be glorious, and He's going to sum up history. And it's going to be the end of human history as we know it. And so the opening chapter of the book of Revelation actually paints the picture of Jesus that we saw in the first eight verses last week. Today we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, and we're going to get a picture of Jesus. And my hope for this morning is that we would see where is Jesus, who is Jesus, and what did Jesus say, recorded for us in the book of Revelation chapter 1. So, with that in mind, let's begin in verse 9, where our author... John the Apostle says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now he's setting the scene. He is the Apostle. Why is he on Patmos? An island 40 miles into the GNC, why is he there on a pile of rocks? Because he is an enemy of Rome. Probably John, as recorded in the uh, book of Acts, constantly said, I must obey God, not man. And so they said, remember 
Acts chapter 5, John was taken into prison and he said, you must not preach. And he said, well, you, you determine whether we should obey God or you, but we can't help but speak about the things that God has done. So they kept speaking. And as a result, I'm sure John was brought to this island as a political prisoner to be exiled on this island of Patmos. That's what we get the word on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Because John kept preaching under persecution. But he wants to make an identification to his readers. And so he says, I am with you a partner and a brother. I love that John, even though he's an apostle, doesn't pull his card of authority. He says, I'm a brother with you. We're we're all on the same footing at the cross. And I'm a partner with you in three things. I circled them in my, uh, my book. In the tribulation, which is certainly underscoring that even in John's day and in our own, John understood that in this world we will have tribulation. Those were the words of Jesus. But we're part of the kingdom. Jesus came and said, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. He inaugurated it in His first coming. He's going to consummate it in His second coming. And of the patient endurance. Listen, patient endurance is a theme that you're going to see throughout the book of Revelation. Why do you think? Because the book of Revelation has in it the judgment of God, persecution, tribulation, difficulty. It is the worst that happens. And so what God calls His people to be a part of is, hey, we're going to go through tribulation, but we're in the kingdom, and we need patient endurance. And it is patient endurance that is asked for, a steadfast faith in the midst of suffering. Do you think we're going to have to have that in our day? Yeah, we're going to have to have that in our day. Because it looks like the world's going to get worse and worse and worse until He comes. And you will need patient endurance where you are between now. You'll need patient endurance through this whole series. Every time you come and hear me preach, you need patient endurance. We'll need patient endurance until we see Jesus. And they're in Jesus. That's how John connects with his audience. Verse 10. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I think he was worshiping. He was filled with the Spirit. And he's going to hear a Spirit-anointed message. He's going to see a Spirit-delivered vision. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So he gets a commission. John, you're to write everything that you see from the revelation of God through the Holy Spirit the revelation of Jesus, you're to write it down in a scroll, in a book, and you're going to capture it, and then send it off to the seven churches. Now, this helps us understand that when John wrote Revelation, it was a historical book to be sent around. So here's a picture of the world in which John was. There it is. 
Italy, Greece, Turkey, Mediterranean Sea. And if we zoom in, you can see that here is Patmos, the island in the bottom left of the picture where he was. And if you just follow along, you would take a boat from Patmos over to Samos or Miletus. And the first city you'd come to was Ephesus. So there are seven churches in Asia Minor. And here they are. This is just a common route that would have gone around from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergama, to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And this letter that John received, he was to take or send, and it was to be delivered to these seven churches. So, um, it was real. Real events in these churches under the Roman Empire were to receive this message. Now, these weren't the only churches in Asia Minor. There were other cities and other churches. And I think the Bible records these seven churches for us to understand that these seven churches and the messages we're going to see given to each of those in chapters 2 and 3 are really messages that could be for any church, including our own. We look at those seven churches and the messages which we will over the next two weeks and we'll think about what does Jesus say to those churches. So everything in the book of Revelation is going to go to those churches, right? Could reflect churches at all times, including today. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. I love that. I turned to see the voice that was speaking. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now the seven golden lampstands, verse 20, the very last phrase of verse 20, says that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So John turns around to the voice and he sees immediately a lampstand on which a oil burning lamp would be that represented the church. It's a symbolism of the seven churches that we've just looked at. And he sees those. And what does he see in the midst of all of those? Yeah, so let's answer the first question. Where is Jesus? We're going to see a picture of Jesus now described, and we'll unpack it. But it is Jesus. And where is Jesus? He is in the midst of the lampstands. What does that mean? Here are the seven churches represented, and John's vision sees the seven churches, and in the midst of all the churches is this one to be described, one like the Son of Man. Jesus is in the midst of the church. He's not above the church, looking down on it. He's not outside it, looking in. But the picture that God gives John is Jesus is right among the church. He's in the church. Remember His words? Where two or three of you are gathered, there I am in the midst of you. Go and make disciples of all nations. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always. Jesus is in the church. He's with the church. 
We're going to look at that more over the weeks, but <clears throat> what does that mean this morning? Do you believe Jesus is here? Okay, do you believe Jesus is seeing what's happening here? Is that good news? It could be. Could be good news. Like, could be a little convicting. Like, with Jesus is here looking at his church. This is his church. He thinks about his churches of all time, and he's there in the midst of them. Where is he? He's, he's here in the church. It's where he is. That's encouraging, and it can be corrective for us, as we'll see over the next couple of weeks. I guess I would lastly just say this. That means then that Jesus is here and He knows what is going on in you. He knows what's going on in us. He knows your pain. He knows your fear. He knows your anxiety. He knows your aspirations. He knows what happened last night. He knows what's going to happen tomorrow. Jesus is in the midst of His church. That's a good thing. Let's see who is this Jesus. I turned to see the voice and I saw the seven lampstands and in the midst of the seven lampstands, ding, 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 you should circle one like the Son of Man in your journal. I saw one like the Son of Man, which is a common reference to a human being, but it's a code for us. And if you know your Bible, you would be thinking that one like the Son of Man is a code for an Old Testament reference. Anybody know what book it comes from? Thank you. It comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. And we're going to go back to Daniel. Remember we did Daniel 1-6 through and then 7-12 through we didn't look at much earlier this year. But when John uses this phrase, he's making a connection for us in our mind to the Old Testament reference back to what Daniel saw. The Son of Man is a central figure in history. He is the one to whom all the kingdoms of the world are given. It refers to the pre-existent one who comes to establish the kingdoms to which all other kingdoms are answerable. All other kingdoms will be done away, but His kingdom will last forever. So it will just help us to take a pause here and look at Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And there, this is back 700 years earlier from John saying what he says in Revelation. Here's the word of Daniel. I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And He came to the ancient of days and was presented before Him. And to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. This is Daniel speaking 700 years before of what would happen that one like the Son of Man stood before the Ancient of Days, which is a reference to God. You can go back to Daniel, see verse 9 that describes the Ancient of Days in ways that are now going to be applied to Jesus in Revelation 1. Chapter 10 is a reference that bears 
Um, lots of similarities to Revelation chapter 1. Just want you to know that when you read Revelation, you're making cues in your mind to what happened in the past. So let's go back to verse 12 and 13 if we can. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, one like the Son of Man, and we're going to make several observations of what John saw among the lampstands. First thing you notice is what he was wearing. This is the way we identify people. We look at each other and say, what you, oh, that's, that's nice what you're wearing. It's the first thing. So what is this one like the Son of Man that John saw in his vision wearing? Well, he's wearing a long robe and a golden sash across his chest. Why? Again, this is apocalyptic language, seeing a vision, but who wore a long robe with a golden sash? In the Old Testament, the high priest wore a long robe with a golden sash. Sometimes royalty would and kings would. But it is a picture of Jesus in His role as a prophet, priest, and king. And He sees Jesus not in sandals, not in a, a robe that was common in the day of the Gospels, but He is in a majestic robe with a golden sash because He is the High Priest. Did you know that in Latin, the, the word for priest is pontifex? And it's an engineering term that is helpful to think about that the priest was a bridge builder. That's what pontifex means, a bridge builder. And Jesus is the high priest building a bridge between man and God. And there He stands in John's vision splendidly dressed as the bridge builder. Do you know we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near to the throne of grace that we may obtain grace to help in our time of need. We have a high priest. Listen, we have a high priest who actually became the sacrifice too. And I just want you to have this in your mind that we're moving toward communion and all of us who are here who follow Christ are going to be invited to take communion and remember that He's the high priest who paid it all. Now the verses continue. Uh, this is what He was wearing. And then in verse 14, there are seven more descriptions of the one like the Son of Man that John saw. And I just want you to follow through these seven things as we go. Number one, the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. Again, this you can make a note of Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, where the Ancient of Days is described this way. But the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. I circled the word like, because what John is trying to do is describe. He's trying to do the best of his ability to describe what this is like, and he's seeing a vision in heaven, and he's using human language to try to describe it. A, a hair like white. What's that for? It's for the wisdom of God, the purity of God. He is perfect in all of his understanding, ageless. 
He knows the beginning and the end. He is all-knowing about everything. I think John looked at this person, one like the Son of Man with perfectly white, snow-like hair, and thought, he has known everything from the beginning. He knew when the Assyrians came in to take Israel captive, and when the Babylonians did, and when the, the Persians took over, and he knew all the successive kingdoms of the earth, and he knows that Rome is now ruling. He knows everything. Hey, he knows everything. Eyes, a hair like white wool. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Secondly, flame of fire, what does that suggest? It suggests that his eyes are pure and purifying and piercing in what they see. He can look at us, he can look into us, he can look through us. And what we would say is, God, search my heart, know me, look at my heart today as I'm sitting here and you're here in this building, you're here watching me. What would I say, Lord? I know you see everything about me, and so uh, that's terrifying. And in a sense, it's comforting that you know me. His feet were like burnished bronze. Again, you can go to Daniel, you can see the statues, you can see that burnished bronze is, is polished, perfect, strong, it's what the king's feet were like and you have a picture of a king being on his throne and all of his subjects before him and he's ruling. He's ruling with power and authority. Strong, steady, tested. King sat on the thrones and the subjects were judged by him. And that's what John saw refined by the furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. Think Niagara Falls rushing and being next to that. And the voice that John heard was overwhelming. What's the voice that you hear? What voice will you be listening to tomorrow around 10 o'clock? John is hearing the voice of Jesus and it's like shutting out every other voice. It's an amazing picture. In his right hand he held seven stars. Verse 20 says the seven stars are the seven angels of the churches. Question, whether, what does that mean? Does the angel mean a, means the word messenger? Is it a human messenger? Is it an angelic being? Some have thought one or both. It's a picture of the church. The lampstands have a messenger. Maybe it's the pastor, humanly speaking, that just shows his control over the seven churches and all the churches, whether it's an angelic messenger or a human messenger, I'm not sure. Probably human. But I know Jesus holds all of them. And from His mouth come the sharp two-edged sword. What is that? That's a picture of the Word of God coming out of His mouth that cuts those who disobey and heals those who obey. You know Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 that the Word of God is sharp and powerful, more powerful than any two-edged sword able to pierce to the very heart. The Word that comes out of this image that he sees is a sharp Word of God that's true. And his face was shining in full strength. It's a picture of the glory of Jesus' face in this moment. And my mind goes back to 
Moses going up to the mountain and meeting with God and coming back with an on-fire face. Why? Because he saw God as he was. Or I think of Matthew chapter 17 where the three disciples went up to the transfiguration and Jesus was transfigured before him and he was shining like the sun and they fell down before him. Remember that? that that's what John is seeing again. He's seeing the full strength of the glory of this one who's like the Son of Man with white hair, flaming eyes, strong feet of judgment, a voice like many waters holding on to the churches, out of his mouth the true word of God, and his face on fire with the glory of God. Okay, is it all just a little too strange for you? Why is John pulling back the curtain on a heavenly vision? Probably every one of us in this room think of Jesus holding the child, feeding the 5,000, calming the storm. We should leave a little space in our brain for where Jesus is now. When He came the first time, He came in humility. He was broken. And He went all the way to death. Where is He now? He is enthroned in heaven as the great high priest who is all of these things, who pulls back the curtain for John to see and says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Don't forget who I truly am. This is not to scare us. This is just really to help us see our Jesus is King Jesus. That's who He is. What happened? Well, he spoke to Jesus, but let's see how John responds. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. This is the way anyone who sees Jesus in his fullness will fall down because there's such a gap between who we are and who he is. And I hope that helps us just understand if we could see Jesus in his fullness, we would be on our face as well. We get a little familiar with Him. It just helps every once in a while to see Him as He is. But I love what comes next. I fell down as dead, but He laid His right hand on me. It's okay. He strengthened me. And what did He say, everybody? Two words. Okay. So I think if Jesus were here and you got a little unsettled by this vision... What he would say to you is, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Stop being afraid. Can we just say those words together? Stop being afraid. I think some of us need to go into tomorrow and say to ourselves before the day starts, stop being afraid. Why? You know who Jesus is. Put his hand on John said, stop being afraid. And then he describes himself. What does Jesus say? I am the first and the last. I know the beginning. I know the end. I know when you came into existence. I know when your life here on earth is going to end. I know everything from start to finish. I know it all. I am the living one. I'm alive. I died. Communion, cross, I died, but I am alive for how long? 
forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus is saying to John, having given him a picture of himself, I'm the beginning, I'm the end. I died, I actually tasted death for you. You do not have to be afraid. I am alive forever and I hold in my hands the keys, the authority, the access to death and therefore to life. So he whoever believes in me shall not die. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. I hold that. Are you ready to take communion? I mean, think about Jesus showing himself to John and saying, I hold the authority of this. I am in an exalted place. How will you respond? John fell down as dead. Jesus put his hand on him, and then he gave him his assignment. I want you to write this. I want you to send it to the churches. And then we are off in the, running in the book of Revelation. Maybe it will just help us today to have Jesus in our mind as we go to communion. Let's pray together.